welcome to the latest edition of the Dishcast, the podcast that I'm doing with various people I like and want to <laughs> talk to, and and have you listen? Uh, and this week, I asked uh, someone I really admire, friend uh, Camille Foster, come on. Uh, to talk about where we are. We're in the middle of an impeachment week and also a, a, a New York Times scandal of the day week. Um, <laughs> but Camille, you may know from his appearances on Real Time with Bill Maher or his hosting the or co-hosting uh, the Fifth Column podcast in which I have been honored to appear along with um, terribly discreditable figures like Michael Moynihan who I can't believe that he actually still exists in our media, but he still does, thank God. Um, and also, something I don't fully understand, a partner in something called Freethink. Camille, what, what is that exactly? Freethink. Uh, well, first, thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. Every time I hear you describe me as a friend, I, I feel, you know, just this this tingle, this oh, thrill going up my please, legs. Please, don't, um, <laughs> don't, say, don't say that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, Freethink is, uh, is a media company. I used to use the phrase like new media, but that's not necessary anymore. We primarily do video. We're small online. Uh, we do do some written editorial content, but still primarily video. But what we focus on is telling the stories about the people and the ideas that are changing the world. Uh, the story we tell in house is if the Wright brothers were flying their plane at Kitty Hawk today, we would be there. We'd be on the ground. And we'd be thinking about all of the ways that this might transform society. It's a story that at the time it happened, no one was paying attention to. Were and they really not? to really pay attention to those things. Yeah, it took, it took years for that to become something that anyone cared about in any sort of material way. I mean, really? You can imagine these two brothers are flying a plane someplace. Like, why should I care about this? Right. It, how could this possibly change everything? Only it, it did. And we feel like there's stuff like that happening all over the world. And while most of the media is about stupid, petty fights and stoking resentment uh, and, and essentially selling columns in that way, the things that really matter just do not get the kind of coverage that they deserve. So we want to tell the most important stories and give them the attention they deserve, put them in skilled hands and inspire people to do something great in the world. Great. Well, um, how would one come across Freethink? I mean, is it is uh, freethink.com? Okay, there you go. You can find all of our stuff there. Uh, we publish to all of the various social platforms that you may use, but freethink.com is the best way to connect with us and keep track of what we're doing and producing. And I'm enormously proud to be a small part of that, that growing team. We've got so many great video producers and um, writers and uh, thinkers. It's just been a, a really cool ride. Good. Camille. I try and do this with the guests on the on the podcast. Um, let's give me a sense of where they're from, like before they became a public figure, before they became an adult. Like, where, what's your background? Where were you born? How did you grow up? And how did that? Uh, I want to ask, uh, how did your politics emerge out of that, if it did at all? Mm. Well, I, I always feel a bit odd telling this story because I, I wish it was more interesting. I'm a first generation American. My family is from the Caribbean. Um, I grew up in and around D.C., uh, went to school at University of Maryland College Park after going to various public high schools and et cetera. Um, and I majored in government and economics uh, after initially thinking I might be a biochemist, spent about a year pursuing that and switched majors. 
Um, and but your folks are where built, in the Caribbean? Uh, Jamaica. Both your parents yeah. are from Jamaica? Yes, yes. Uh, although my biological father, we didn't have much of a relationship. When I came here, my mother was young, pregnant, and single. And my stepfather, someone she met uh, when I was around two years old. Um, and I, I actually think my, my dad, as I called him all my life, um, this is just had a pretty profound yeah, had a pretty profound impact on my thinking, uh, specifically about myself and my own identity, uh, because he wasn't someone who was trapped by notions of sort of race. Um, and he was someone who was particularly, I think, uniquely liberated from the perspectives of other people with respect to who he was. Tell me um, more about him. something that he really tried to cultivate in me. Um, well, he's a guy who uh, played football. Um, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, he went to, um, he was a member of the, the Washington Stonewalls and went to um, high school in a period of time before Brown v. Board of Education. So he ended up playing while semi-pro football while the NFL was still segregated. Mm. And, you know, growing up in that time, I think despite his experience, was very much the sort of person who, for the most part, he had his, his limitations in this way. Um, but for the most part, just judged people on the basis of who they were um, and expected that other people would do the same for him. And what was really important was, you know, cultivating a reputation for being the kind of person that does that and ensuring that I understood how important it was to be my own person, uh, to be autonomous with respect to my own thinking and to not uh, buy into uh, other people's perspectives of what I ought to do, um, or and that what was I ought to think. that was partly about uh, being black in America. I, I think it was more, but that's just it for mm -hmm. him. It was just you know being me, decidedly and distinctly me. And I think I try to make certain that that's something that I manifest in all areas of my life uh, as I've grown up. <laughs> And as I've become someone who talks in public, uh, I frequently find myself coming into conflict with ideas about race and identity. And it's primarily because for myself, for all of the same reasons I just outlined, I don't feel confined by notions of race. And you weren't identity. brought up I that don't way. Identify as black in that way. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's something that really had to evolve because it wasn't so much that my father would say to me, you know, Camille, you're not a black man. His thing was, you're Camille. And that's what's really important here. And wherever you go, you need to represent yourself in a way that, you know, comports with how much you respect yourself and how much you want others to respect you, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, it seems to me that most of our contemporary ideas about race today are, are things that are oftentimes incompatible with that, um, especially as we've gotten into what I think it, we, maybe we could describe it as this particularly uniquely identitarian moment where people for noble reasons think it's a good idea to wrap themselves in their racial identity and confront notions of racial identity that exist um, and establish new standards and ideas about equity uh, related to you know race and the distribution of goods and services and rights etc in, in our lives so so I, you I've were always unusual ideas about that right so you were kind of brought up into individualism as an idea, like that—that that, that was the more, most important thing, which must have meant in America. Um, well, how did your parents? 
Forgive me if I'm prying, but I, I just find it fascinating because yeah. a lot of people have said to me that in discussing race in America, I'm at a very deep disadvantage in not having grown up here. Uh, and uh -huh. I think I am. At the same time, I also think there is sometimes an advantage to not being completely marinated in the culture to see some of its some of its craziness, uh, some of the assumptions mm -hmm. that you sort of, well, why? Why are you saying that? Uh, but was the Jamaican nature of your parents like that? Uh, because that does that's that's a slightly different experience. The Jamaican immigrant experience is different than, you know, descendants of slaves uh, or other kinds of African American experiences. Was that the most? Was that a factor in this? Uh, I'd say it was decidedly important with respect to how my ideas have evolved. Um, I've always said that Jamaicans have this ability to be conveniently black. They can, <laughs> in different circumstances, identify as black people. But growing up in my household where when we first came to the country, I'm in a house with my mom, my grandmother, I think two of my uncles are living in the house, my grandfather, and everyone is in the area. There was a very real sense of our Jamaicanness and of native-born Black people's sort of otherness. And I, I think it's born out of a lot of different things, and it's complicated, but most people who are the first-generation Blacks, whether they be from you know, Africa or Jamaica, probably share some sensibility about that and even have some kind of animosity <laughs> towards other groups um, that, that may kind of look like them. So that put me outside of the conventional Black experience and at least gave me the, the inclination to be skeptical of certain aspects of it or and to, Jamaica, to not be Jamaica, trapped by it with respect to how I think about issues. Jamaica is very socially conservative as well. Is, was, that, was that part of your father's worldview? Um, well, actually, my father was born here. Oh, right. So he, my my dad was here. My my biological father, very much a Jamaican guy, grew up in Jamaica, okay. but I, I just really didn't know yeah. him at all. Um, but it's certainly true that there's this conservative thing about Jamaicans. But growing up, I was mostly a default Democrat who didn't give much thought to public policy issues. You know, you you grow up and you're told that Ronald Reagan sucks the marrow out of baby's bones and you <laughs> believe it. You just presume it to be true. Was that really and, what you were taught? I mean, he was a de demonized like figure. These people are all racist monsters. You know, that's pretty right. much it. So we, even though you brought up, you know, in a very Jamaican African-American context, the mm -hmm. notion of omnipresent racism was still there in your head from the very beginning. Uh, did you... This is... Mm -hmm. Did you did you encounter it? Did you did you see this in your own life, or was was that process a a more complicated thing? I can certainly say that I've had some encounters with actual racism. Um, I, before we moved to to Maryland, I lived in Ashburn, Virginia, which you know, it became very well known globally because it was a hub for a lot of early internet companies. Um, network companies in particular. Um, but when I lived there, it was mostly farms. And the school I went to, I was one of two uh, black kids. And I can remember distinctly playing with a little girl across the street and getting into a situation where she says to me, I can't play with you anymore because my daddy says I can't play with niggers. And the only thing I know um, after that is I go home, I tell my parents, I was slightly confused by this. Um, How old were you? My dad goes across the street maybe eight or nine. Okay. Um, but my dad goes across the street and talks to her dad, and that's, that was the last of it. Uh, beyond that, 
you know, was I treated differently in class on account of my blackness? I don't, I don't know to the extent it's true. Again, the, the, what I was being taught at home was, you know, go out and be great, be remarkable at the various way in the various contexts that you're going to have to be in. And I always felt like I was being treated, you know, in accordance with the, the, the way I was performing. And to the extent I wasn't, I never got to the point where I was latching on to this narrative about, well, it must be because of my blackness, right. this isn't working out in my favor. Right. You just try to find out a way, find a way to make it work in your favor. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, I, I have, it's a very different experience um, coming up and being a different kind of minority in a different kind of place. Um, hmm. But I am struck by the minority experience because some of it is simply how one responds to being a minority within a big majority is often a psychological question. It, it's it's hmm. how do you manage difference uh, that you're different? So you may not be the majority. So the, the entire society or construct in which you're living in is whether you like it or not, because this is what happens in majority places, it's going to be determined by the majority, not the minority. Um, but you, the minority can have a different, have varying responses to that, which is fair enough. It's only, we're only 10% or only 3%, whatever. Of course, it's going to be like this. Yeah. Um, secondly, this, this, and so who gives a fuck? And the, or there's this sense of, uh, I feel alienated, isolated, oppressed by being not like everyone else. Um, mm -hmm. and, and a whole range of obviously positions in between those two, those two things. I, you know, as a, as a, growing up as a gay kid, I, uh, uh, it didn't occur to me. I think more, maybe because I, I, I thought that gayness was my fault and the idea that society was at fault for persecuting me did mm -hmm. not really occur to me until I'd grown up and gotten my act together and, and seen the world as it mm -hmm. is, um, but and also growing up as a as a Catholic in a in a, a very Protestant country, uh, it's a strange minority experience. Um, and then growing up again to find out that among the gays you're also this minority because you don't buy a certain <laughs> bunch of ideological baggage that comes with these identities. So I mean that's why I think I've always vibed with what you're with, with that experience, and I, and it's always frustrated me that the Minority, minority experience, if you want to say, like, is, sure. is so little understood. Um, and uh, how groupthink in the sense has kind of overwhelmed the individual in these, in these minority spaces. Yeah, no, that all sounds right to me. And, and I think what's, what goes underappreciated, there are many things, but what really stands out to me is the, the in-group hostility and the policing that happens with respect to what is acceptable for you to think as a quote, black man or as a gay man, these are the right ideas for us. And to the extent you don't think these ideas, you know, one of the things that surprised me about this recent appearance on Bill Maher, and not completely surprised because I've seen it before, um, but surprised in the sense that it's so uniform uh, across the people who find my perspectives on things disagreeable. Oftentimes they don't really know what my perspective is because they weren't listening. Um, is I'll be described as dangerous. And <laughs> it just is astonishing to me. Um, dangerous or I'm disappointing people. Um, they, they feel, you know, shame because of the things that I'm saying, which all strike me as very strange for someone to indulge in. 
for them to not find it unusual that a stranger who has a different point of view than theirs could be dangerous or, or, you know, inducing shame in them because they exist in the world and happen to look something like them and think differently. And I think there's something about that, that people ought to be interested in interrogating in themselves. And unfortunately there there's less and less curiosity about that sort of weirdness. I, I, um, I discovered like, you know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, that if you are a tall poppy, as it were, uh, within a particular community, um, mm. and that community feels already beleaguered, stressed out, oppressed, or whatever, or was going through some serious issues, and you don't reflect them exactly, right. you've let them down. And not only that, you've sort of attacked them in some way. You've, you've kind of said you can be gay and not be this way. And mm -hmm. therefore, they have to reflect upon themselves. And what I found uh, after a while of absorbing a huge amount of hostility and anger and rage, I realized it was not ultimately about me. It was about their desire yeah. to feel completely okay in the world. And someone who took a slightly different path or a slightly different point of view suggested them a path not taken or a path taken that mm. they could never have taken. Uh, mm. Uh, particularly within the gay community about people who can pass, as it were, as straight, as opposed to people who can't pass as straight. Yeah. Now, of course, it's not your problem. Yeah. It's not your fault if, if you're passing as straight or, or whatever, but it is it, it, these, these incredible insecurities and vulnerabilities. Uh, and, I've, and this tall poppy thing really does work that way. The resentment, especially mm -hmm. of successful members of minorities who aren't completely down the line. Um, and you see that being replicated all over the, all over the place. Um, do you consider yourself privileged in that way? I mean, that would be one of the, uh, or, or let me just, the other accusation, self-hating or self-loathing in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I certainly don't hate myself. Um, I, I find, you know, in certain, in certain instances, I'll be condemned both for my hubris and for my self-loathing, which is weird. Um, but I don't hate myself. Um, and uh, with respect to privilege, I mean, I, I do consider myself privileged. I grew up in a household with people who loved me and who poured into me and told me I could do and be anything. Um, I've, you know, had a, a fair amount of success professionally in my adult life, um, I think in large part because of all of that and the skills I was able to acquire in my youth. But we could stop and right of there. I had some good luck. We could, we could start right there, Camille, with your family. I mean, to have uh, uh, a stepfather, but effect effectively a father and a mother mm -hmm. telling you you're the best and supporting you and loving you is something that is, is an experience that obviously I think is always integral to becoming a fully, a fully flourishing human being. But so many African-American kids in this country do not have that support uh, by virtue of a father who may not be completely absent, but is much less likely to be living in the home with the kid as other, other ethnic groups. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the things that always strikes me when we have discussions about racial inequality and its resilience is that I don't, I don't know how you get past the family structure problem. I don't know how uh, a generation of young black kids can have the same 
potential if they are hamstrung by chaotic, unstable, or difficult family lives where they're struggling just to, to stay sane and to stay safe and don't get that kind of reinforcement that other kids get. And, and the thing is, is, I mean, I'm just gonna say this out loud. I, there's nothing government can do with respect to that. I mean, I, I remember Joe well, Biden once got into trouble by saying, well, we have to send people in to tell them how to raise their kids. I think that was like 20 years ago when he said a lot of highly incorrect <laughs> things back in the day. Um, but of course you can't. Um, but if that's where a huge amount of the problems lie, uh, how do you ignore that? How do you just then focus on who's getting into colleges as opposed to who has a chance to be a, to actually have a full life? Um, it seems to me that we're always trying to correct things at the back end rather than the front end. Uh, am, am, am I being is is this is this a racist? I mean, am I? I know I know that's an easy question to ask you, but. Is there a problem with thinking? Is there a problem with my thinking that way? The thinking that things are that, that, that human beings are the, the the role of the family in forming people is the most important thing, and if one group in society is is really hobbled by that from the very get go, it's incredibly hard to make up for it. Well, I want to respond two ways by making two points because I think anyone who's listening to this, who's a critic of yours, is definitely thinking, "Well, you're completely." discounting or at least ignoring the historical reality and the fact that all of these horrible things have happened in the past in the United States and black people have been subjugated in various systematic ways, which have contributed to the disparities that exist and even those busted up family structures. And I don't think there is anything incompatible about making the observation that you just did and acknowledging the reality that of course, history has some bearing on the present. We all agree on that. And we all agree that a grave injustice took place and that in many ways, however difficult it is to quantify, and it is difficult, that history matters today. Um, Absolutely. I just want to say that's, that I, that's my position. Oh, my position it. is you can believe all that, but here we are. It's 2021. Yep. We want everybody, well, I assume everybody wants Everybody, every group to be flourishing. We, of course we do. The yeah. question is how and why is this so hard? And, um, uh, and that's why I keep coming back to that because it seems to me by far the ob most obvious solution. Um, at least, sorry, the, the, yeah. the most obvious cause of, of all this. Um, yeah. But, but the, th the second thing that I'd say, and this is very, this, this goes against the grain of what I think is, is, very prominent right now is that the focus on racial inequality in any number of contexts, so far as I'm concerned, is a profound distraction. And it is something that generally takes us out of the mode of thinking about things that are actionable that we can actually do to affect outcomes and help improve the quality of people's lives or things that may, as you pointed to, family structure, be having a, a, a profound impact on outcomes that you know, individuals will need to do on their own. And I think there's a universe of both kinds of issues. And generally speaking, as a society, um, and I think this is true of both the left and the right, we tend to spend a great deal of time focusing on race in this country. We're, we're sort of possessed by it. It's a bit of, it's like this poltergeist that is always moving through our, our minds and through our politics. It gives us this 
veneer of understanding. We feel as though we're being a bit more serious and rigorous and analytical when we frame things with respect to racial disparities between groups. But I think all of that undermines the project of really understanding what is going into producing complex societal outcomes. And you know, if I have a project in public, like the fundamental project that I'm engaged in is well, one, just the advancement of classical liberal ideals, which I'm, I buy into completely. But two, and, and perhaps distinctly, is, is helping to deconstruct you know, the, the racecraft that we all engage in on a regular basis and trying to highlight the various ways that our discussions about race are profoundly unserious and how they tend to divide us and obscure the truth and generally ruin everything, which if I ever finish a book, that'll be at least the subtitle of it. But here's where I think um, people who might disagree with us on a few things have a point. Um, it seems to me that we can't at this point rectify what happened in the 17th and 18th centuries. However, we can see... Yes. <laughs> We can't, and also to understand that that's in the context of the world, and these, it wasn't that this part of the world was uniquely iniquitous. It was, dis, it was despicable in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, but it did find a way uh, in the end to correct itself. Um, uh, but things in the 20th century, like redlining, uh, like the way in which African-American families were denied uh, property, the ability to build wealth through their property, uh, through property, the way in which the government itself systematically pushed African Americans away from that kind of wealth accumulation, which leaves us right now with even though even we we could say here are the things we need to do which have nothing to do with this, but that wealth discrepancy that it's a huge issue for your personal and human security, uh, and that discrepancy is vast and and it's not doesn't seem to be improving. Is there some collective uh, solution to that? I mean, I, I understand how com completely impossible it is, but it does seem to me that that inequality in resources is pretty profound and hard to just ignore. How do we get past yeah, that? How do and, we deal with that? We, how, do we, how do we resolve the wealth gap? Well, again, I think if it's a wealth gap between racial groups, then I think we've got a lot of complex realities that we probably need to delve into and understand the fact that different African, different black groups, right. you know, to use this, to use this word, like tend to do pretty well in this country, that different black genders tend to do well in different ways that black, I mean, black women, women do, actually much, do a yeah. profound job when it comes to, you know, attaining collegiate success, some questions about the kinds of things they're majoring in but they outperform virtually everyone else, black women um, do with respect to you know, attaining um, college degrees. So there's a lot of complexity there, but I, I really do think that we just have to, we have to acknowledge that it is a hard thing to ignore, which is why we haven't ignored it. Since the 1960s, people have been talking incessantly about creating government programs to try and you know, raise the, the black man up as um, I guess the Negro is the word that uh, LBJ would have used in his speech at Howard University when he was outlining his, outlining his proposals. And many of those schemes have failed miserably and in certain respects have probably done more harm than good. Uh, I, I only have to think of like the Puritt Igo um, public housing projects, which were supposed to be you know, these revolutionary approaches to bringing science and technology 
to bear in order to to lift up these people, which failed. Um, so I, I think we're better off truly focusing on if we if we care about wealth creation, like wealth creation, and less so on this question of whether or not you know one group doesn't have enough or as much as they ought to, or you know these various things happened in the past that have made it harder for them to acquire wealth. All of those things can be true. And it also just be true that it's, it's far too difficult to do the kind of targeted growth thing that people imagine is necessary. And the best thing for us to focus on is not, you know, the, the revival of some old way that was imagined to be much better or the redistribution of everything that exists, but fundamentally focusing on ways that we can promote wealth and prosperity across the board that empower as many people as possible to find a way to make a, a living on their own, to, to make the right kinds of choices and embrace the right kind of values so that they can thrive in what is an imperfect, but a largely meritocratic society. One where people from around the world, they, they flee where they are and they have come here historically to pursue a better life, life for themselves. And we ignore that dynamism at our peril. We, we, we pivot to a system of equity and focusing on, you know, whether or not the right kind of people are getting enough um, at our As own opposed peril to how do we actually risk breaking the machine. Yeah, that's all true. I mean, part of me wants to think that the, the sudden immense ratcheting up of the plight of African-Americans has happened in the 20, late, you know, uh, 20, 15 to 2021, where we are, uh, mm. is in part a function of a distraction in a way from the fact that so many of these initiatives have failed. So, I mean, mm. when, when, when affirmative action was first brought in, it, it was clearly understood to be a very temporary measure that we'd phase it out after a while, because obviously once we got rid of these, these barriers and gave people the start, then it would have a momentum of its own. And yet we've now gone to installing it as a permanent feature of our society almost that 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 equity or affirmative action the, the outcome equal outcomes racially has now been expanded to almost everything is 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 this you know is this actually an impossible task that people are setting themselves to have this this racial equality and how much government power will have to be acquired to actually enforce it that's the question to me yeah, well, I, I certainly think it's an impossible task in the in the way people imagine it, right? I, I think the leveling is is quite easy in some respects to imagine. You you can degrade the quality of society to the point where everyone has very little, <laughs> and in that sense, you achieve the kind of equity and equality you're chasing after. But the sort of world where we have this dynamic machine for creating wealth, and we ensure that precisely the right amounts of that wealth are accruing to each different racial group, however we're defining them in proportion to their share of the population, it's an absurdity. And it's an absurdity because these racial groups aren't constructed in obvious, consistent ways. Um, the boundaries between them are very different and the groups themselves are not monolithic. They're incredibly dynamic. And while we talk about you know Asians being incredibly successful, we when we do that, discount the fact that there are various communities of Asian people, and some of them are far more successful than others. Um, and the same is true amongst whites or blacks or any of these other groups. Um, so again, I think it's the, it, there are mystical ideas almost that are 
at the forefront of our minds when we think about really complicated issues um, around, you know, the composition of society and the notion of like fairness historically. I mean, and this, this I think term, we would be better this, served to kind of simplify those constructs. This term white supremacy, which has sort of been revived. Um, yeah, revived and transformed. Of, kind of. I mean, I, you know, I understand the term. I thought I understood the term. Um, most <laughs> Americans still understand the term to mean someone in a white pointy a hood, basically, a, a sure. far right people who believe the white race are commanded to govern the world, uh, have some bullshit in superiority complex over others. And now it just means America 2021. Right. It, it just means somehow a majority of people are look a certain way and therefore it's some kind of supremacy or that they have what, what I now hear being called white values. Um, or white supremacy culture, which seem to be mm -hmm. bound up with capitalism, which also includes things like showing up on time and making sure you spell correctly. Um, I find, I, I just find that abuse of language really frustrating. It's as if you just, you just ratchet up the hyperbole and think that's an argument. It's not an argument. Yeah. It's a, it's 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 an emotional ratcheting up to make the other person have to splutter and defend themselves um, in this way. Uh, how do we battle back against this idea? Because it's becoming now, it's 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 becoming quite common to use as a regular description of America, and yet it's also yeah. being used by someone like Joe Biden in his inaugural address say that he wants to tackle this white supremacy what does that mean now we have the notion that white supremacy is connected to domestic terrorism and we have to have the government and the state monitoring it and controlling it and this term white supremacy is incredibly slippery and and dangerous to my in my view and helps constantly indicate that we have made absolutely no progress racially you know since 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 slavery. Yeah. No, that's that's certainly that that last point, the the fact that it suggests that we haven't made any any progress is one of the things that first made the practice of using the word in the sort of sloppy way that we do now um particularly distressing to me uh because I I think we have made enormous progress and that progress is very important to me. I I think that the But that's the precisely what that they were reject, right? It's there there's something structural mm -hmm in the systems and brains of all of us right. that is Absolutely. perpetuating this. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'd say that you know, it's certainly true that this, this kind of dual use of white supremacy is something that is just probably here to stay in some respects. Uh, I mean, I think Joe Biden using it in that way is indicative of just how potent it is. Um, but part of the reason for that potency is because people who use the phrase now are happy to indulge in using it both ways, both as this description of people's active, racially biased ideas, um, and this also this description of society at large, like a, a society constructed with the kind of history that we do. All of the institutions are contaminated, contaminated by white supremacy. To, to the extent that's true, it's rather odd that you know certain groups have the kinds of great outcomes that they do. Um, but even more than that, I think it's worth being very cognizant of the fact that it's operating in these two different ways, and the fact that for for and I, I think it's fair to say, just on the left in particular, 
white supremacy is this this invincible argument that can be deployed in any number of contexts. Uh, when I hear people talk about the the Capitol riots, which are lamentable and awful, um, and they're talking about them in in terms of you know, well, this is a white supremacist riot. There's a great deal of opportunism um, going on there, and the opportunity to make it seem as though you know, this is effectively the old South rising again and trying to take power and prevent Black people from advancing. There is a lot of emotional resonance in that. It's, it's potent and people are afraid to push back against it. Um, I, I have a melanin force field so I can call it out and say, well, that's bullshit. That just does not wash. And there's something gross about you suggesting that that's what this is, plain and simple. Um, and I just think more of us need to develop the spine um, and perhaps take some risks in order to, to call that out, to make it unacceptable um, and unpalatable for people to go about doing um, what I think is a pretty crass um, kind of bit of alchemy there to just try to, to make all of their claims impervious to criticism by suggesting that what's going on here is racism and only, only a bad person would oppose us trying to do something about racism. And of course, all of our opponents are the bad people, which makes them the racists. It's also true that you could interpret things like, I want to lower the corporate tax rate as a form of white supremacy. I've, I've, yes. I've, I've, I've heard it argued, seen it argued uh, mm -hmm. with straight faces that, that the sex binary is a function of white supremacy. The, basically, the entire world was constructed by these Enlightenment fascists who who, mm -hmm. who, who perpetuated these incredible uh, labels and groups to oppress and manipulate. And none of us has ever been able to get out from under their their superstructure. And uh, and yeah. therefore, therefore, the goal is revolutionary. It is, and it has to start right. from the the person. Everybody inside has to have this revelation. What happened last summer? I mean. I hear people talking about as a racial, this word reckoning. We've all had a reckoning. Um, right. I see that now as in, in sort of a empirical accounts. Since the national reckoning on race last summer, and I just, right. I, right. I, where I didn't, you know, what happened? I, I seen a miss, I didn't reckon. I mean, I understood what was going on. I was horrified by the, the murder uh, uh, of Floyd, obviously, and, and, and police brutality. But that, this would suddenly click overnight and everybody would have a complete paradigm shift in in unison that this is the key to our everything and and i i felt weirded out by it uh i i, I yeah. didn't recognize some of the things my friends were saying and doing uh i found that when i tried to engage the arguments about it empirically like how many were shot how, without how many unarmed how many people <laughs> were shot other i mean all these sort of broader contextualizing points you might make they were all beside the point in fact if you started nitpicking like that you were obviously a racist uh, right uh how is it for you i mean as a white person i'm like what the fuck happened to all these people? What what happened overnight? What, 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 who changed these rules suddenly? For a black person, it must have been even more bewildering. Or was well, it? Well, even well, even more for for a, a person like me who is determined to try and promote a, a perspective that doesn't require us to think about everything with respect to race. To see everything switch, the whole paradigm, and 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 in a real sense, people seeming to abandon 
these very basic values um, about what the notion of like that equality ought to be the standard, that ought to be the thing that we're aiming for, our lodestone as opposed to equity. Like that's been incredibly disorienting and yeah. at times like very, very distressing. And it was already quite difficult to have those tough conversations with people about criminal justice issues and about what I think continues to be a great deal of you know, sensationalism. Um, and again, even with respect to police shootings, the disproportionate focus on sort of the racial composition on those numbers um, and not the kinds of policies that can actually have a meaningful impact on limiting the number of people who are being harmed by police violence. Um, so it, it's been very, very challenging to, to try and to because try and that shift is now, focus on this. Yeah, I certainly I, think you're right that it wasn't a racial reckoning, that there was something else taking place. It's, it's, and especially in the context of you know, this global pandemic, when you see the same sort of protests spontaneously explode in France and in Australia, like all over the place, um, I think that Martin Gurry, um, whose book I've been talking about a lot recently, is probably a better is probably better a better frame for understanding the kind of wave of social movements that we've seen um, and these mass demonstrations and protests um, than anyone who is talking about this narrowly with respect to race. Um, I think he helps to contextualize, you know, everything from Occupy Wall Street to the Arab Spring to but the, the Yellow Vest Rebellion is, the, is all the, kind of the same in the same vein. The emphasis on the group and its outcome mm -hmm. as opposed to the individual and his or her potential. This is, seems to me, it's the, the shift from equality to equity is the same shift from intent to impact. And I wanted mm. to get to that because everything is viewed from the level of systems and harm and oppression uh, between mm -hmm. these various groups. Uh, and so, for example, we have now told this, this week by the New York Times, by Dean Baquette, that what matters in using various words that could be understood in some contexts to be, uh, in many contexts, to be racially inflammatory, that the in mm -hmm. your intent in using that word is irrelevant. Right. So when, I don't know what really happened in the Donald McNeil case, so I'm not, casting judgment or I can't make a decision about that. But what I can say is that if you are describing a word, the N-word, as it's been used, describing whether, as I understand he was, whether uh, one kind of utterance of it needs to be punished or another kind of utterance is okay, um, who, how much punishment should meet out this person and so on. And for him to just say that word as a way to discuss mm -hmm. that issue is at this point no better than if he screamed it as an African-American student in a, in a, in a fit of abuse. Uh, and right. that is, so, so the, your intent as an individual, no lot, what matters is the result. If someone was harmed, that's what matters. And how do you know if someone was harmed? They simply say they were. No right. other proof is right. required. Now, that's coming right. from the times. I mean, that is, again, we look at that institution a bit too often, but I do think it represents, to some extent, the Vatican of the, uh, the cathedral, as it were, of, 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 mm -hmm. of, 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 of acceptable liberal discourse. And to shift from the fact that we do, that a writer, writers, speakers, 
their intent in using language is now irrelevant. Uh, mm-hmm. is, 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 is an incredible attack upon the, the freedom to write, to think, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and liber- liberalism altogether. Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's, there's so much going on with that story. I mean, I think the fact that the New York Times sort of official response to this controversy began with, well, he didn't mean it in a derogatory way we ought to give him an opportunity to learn, i.e. intent matters. Days later, days later, <laughs> another statement, intent doesn't matter. You don't get to use these words. Um, and I think for precisely the same reason that you just suggested, we focus on the New York Times a lot because it is a bit of a bellwether and gives us some sensibility about what's going on. That kind of whiplash, that, that sort of shift in thinking from you know moments ago, days ago, you were saying that this was okay, and now it isn't suddenly, um, I think is very much indicative of where we find ourselves and where the real problems are. And it's, it's imperative for folk, folks to focus on the reality that policing language in this way, insisting that we disregard intent and simply set up, you know, essentially this trap for people. Because even to use, you know, N-word in, parent- in quotes is a pen- potentially dangerous for you. Um, <laughs> this this is about something other than well actually it's very much about privilege and it's very much about power but not in the way that people imagine this isn't about protecting black people um so much as wielding power and perhaps um prescribing for people what is acceptable to say and not stay and maybe it has something to do with institutions that you know feel uniquely vulnerable now because they don't have the sort of monopoly that they used to have uh, in terms of you know, what is acceptable to talk about openly um, or who the authorities are in our society. But I think um, what so happened- that, that may have something to do with it. But the specific issues with respect to race are, I think, very interesting too. What seemed to have happened here is that uh, black staffers got on Baquette's case right. about this, that once they discovered right. that they had done an investigation, figured out what happened, Told him that this is you shouldn't do that in future, but he didn't mean right. any racist intent. Somehow, other staffers at the newspaper managed to pressure uh, through also an online media campaign to get this guy uh-huh. finished and to have that be yeah. basically the entire point of his career. In some ways, he I mean he had been a celebrated reporter on the COVID crisis, for example. He was he was regarded as a pretty pretty good journalist. Um, yeah. Which means essentially that a group that, that uh, maybe this is the way that Slack works now, or maybe it's the way the internet works <laughs> or that Twitter works is that mobs, online mobs essentially now make the big decisions for the New York times editorial. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's what's happening. Uh, yeah. And one always yeah. has to wonder, who were these kids that were so traumatized by this? I mean, they're, they're obviously kids whose parents can afford like six grand to send them on a tour of Peru. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not clear that he's, he's engaging in anything. Or it might even be clear they were trying to trap him because they also know the power yeah. they have now. Uh, well, even even the folks who work at the Times who were so deeply offended that this took place, I mean, they apparently imagine themselves as victims, as sort of systematically disadvantaged and not li- and unheard 
within the New York Times when all available evidence suggests in many respects, they are the people responsible for running the newsroom. Yeah. Simultaneously suggesting that they are disadvantaged and disempowered and that no one listens to them or cares about them, while at the same time being the driving force behind this profound cultural shift, these purges that are being inspired by the work that they're doing. Um, even over the summer when we were seeing you know, this, this massive tumult that was taking place in the country, these demonstrations that would occasionally give way to paroxysms of, vi of violence and looting and burning. You had someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times, um, saying that it would be you know, her honor to have these described as the 1619 riots, which, I mean, this is, it is, there's something very obscene about the way that invocations of race and talk of white privilege and white supremacy kind of flatten the actual complexity of the world, but also in the way that they take blackness you know, this, this thing, and they, they conflate the experience and the life, the, the life experience, the lived experience of someone, you know, who's a prominent New York Times reporter or contributor um, or editor-in-chief with the lived experience of someone who lives on the south side of Chicago and who lives like this genuinely difficult life, regardless of the race that they happen to be. And who wins in that exchange? You know, when we're, we're pretending that Nicole Hannah-Jones is sort of disadvantaged in some way, shape, or form that is fundamentally the same as someone who lives in the south side of Chicago or in East New York um, or someplace in, you know, rural America and is just deprived, that their experiences are the same because of their blackness in some fundamental sense. I think that, that sort of um, distortion of reality is one that probably hurts the people who need help the most. Um, while giving a tremendous amount of power and ostensible moral authority to people who already have a great deal of power. And I don't think there's enough scrutiny be being given to that, to that reality. Yeah, and the sense of impunity, too. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, somebody asked her a question on Twitter, and in response, she published their phone number. Uh, right, and doxes them. Doxes yeah. someone, which is a... But, but would... Is anybody able at the New York Times to say, shouldn't this person representing our company have some ethics? Uh, do we? Is, <laughs> Apparently, is, you you can, but it, you have to be a different sort is, of person. But it shows right? you where the where the power really is um, yeah. at this point. Um, yeah, uh, and I find this the concept of blackness and whiteness. Uh, I mean, I, Dan Frumkin, who, you know, a good guy, a nice, you know, smart guy, journalist, press journalist, writes this memo mm. about how journalism in the future should be. And in the middle of it, he just plops in this thing, uh, uh, the problem of whiteness. How do we get rid of whiteness mm -hmm. in the newsroom? And right. how do we push back against white values? And I'm like, what is, are we in fucking apartheid South Africa? What, what are white values, for fuck's sake? Right. I mean, it, right. it's, it's, a, it's, it's horrifying that people are reifying race in this way, in a way that we, mm -hmm. in any other context, we would recognize as something that someone from the, you know, truly disgusting uh, white supremacists would use. I mean, they, they use terms like whiteness. They reify these skin colors, for fuck's sake. That's all they are. As some sort of overarching 
civilization. The idea that Western civilization is somehow a representation of whiteness, I mean, it's certainly not by the people who thought they were constructing it. Um, right. And unless you want to reduce their entire civilization to the color of their skin, which you, of course they do in some ways, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they can have a, something to say to you. I mean, it's, 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 a, it, it's, it's terrifying to me that this stuff can can come out of the, the mouths of, of people who are completely normal, regular people who suddenly decide there's some, there are certain values that are white and certain values that are black. And, you know, there's, there are definite features of, like, European-American society you can make fun of. And, I, you know, I think things like, you know, the, the, the sort of memes that make fun of white people, what white people like and so on, these, it's a fun and games or whatever. But the notion that it really does exist that you could say of all the diverse points of view, backgrounds, ideas, personalities that could be encompassed by the term white people somehow all have the same values, the same based on race. I mean, this is, it's incredibly retrograde, it seems to me. Yeah, which is why I always come back to you know, wondering if there isn't a distinct I mean, I know there's a distinct advantage in looking at all the complex issues without respect to race, but if there's some advantage to be gained in the political discourse by always forcing people who insist on framing things with respect to race to, to not do that. And in many respects, by, we can help that along by modeling that sort of behavior ourselves um, and complicating our thinking around important issues. Um, and insisting that other people do the same and engage with these ideas, because I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think reifying the race, reifying race in the way that a number of well-intentioned, presumably people seem to be doing in service of trying to rectify the past um, is, is extremely harmful, harmful. It's also profoundly ahistorical. I mean, there was slavery all across North America and South America, and far more African slaves were shipped to South America than to North America is the, you know, backwardness of certain South American countries, or at least the, you know, economic, um, I'm just going to use the word retardation, <laughs> the, um, word. But the, the lack of economic progress in some of those places, something that could be credited to white supremacy, while at the same time, presumably the success of the United States is credited to white supremacy. This makes very little sense um, and obscures just how complicated and how complicated history actually is, the number of factors that actually went into creating the kind of prosperity that we have here in this country, um, but also the complexity of the, the disparities that continue to exist and persist across racial groups and within racial groups um, and across society more broadly. My recommendation is always to ask, what do you mean by that? Just yes. Constantly yeah. search for specifics. You know, Orwell was, you know, that great essay he wrote, Politics in English Language. He said, always use a short word rather than a long word because you're closer mm. to understanding the clear meaning of it. Don't use long Latinate words that are divorced mm. from Anglo-Saxon English, which most people can understand. So if you say cis-heteronormative patriarchy, it, you, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good sign that it's bullshit. You say, what do you mean yeah. by that? Tell me in English. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I can listen. I, I mean, I read that piece this week. I, Isaac Chotner um, interviewed the San Francisco uh, 
board of education person who was involved in in ridding mm. the school schools of any names that associated with white supremacy. And I mean, yeah. I, seriously, I could reproduce a paragraph of her response and not understand a word she's saying. There are no concrete nouns. There are no things you can recognize. It is one long word salad of buzzwords right. designed uh, to cover up what it's really about. Uh, and yeah. that's the language thing is 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 driving me nuts too. I mean, I I, yeah. I had this, I, I've go I've, on. I've seen some people be critical of folks who are paying attention to the the naming controversy in San Francisco, and I'd say fiasco is probably a better word for it. But I mean, to the extent there's something weird, I think it's ignoring the fact that in San Francisco, the public schools there have been largely shuttered. And then in San Francisco, certain, certain demographics have been profoundly underserved by those schools for decades now. Um, and in some respects, the indicators suggest that things are getting worse and not better. That these failing institutions during a year where they've largely been absent from the lives of students because they've remained largely closed, not merely due to the pandemic, but also due to teachers unions who see this as an opportunity to, to perhaps flex some muscle here, um, that they're focusing on these kinds of things when kids need so much. Um, and when they're not renaming schools, rather than focus on the really hard work of instituting meaningful remediation programs that can help the kids that are behind catch up, um, they're focused on dismantling the systems of uh, merit that have been used to fuel the, the, the success of particular kinds of schools that have been like these magnet schools. And the same thing has happened in New York, where I, where I was until recently a resident. Again, the most successful schools are the ones that they start to dismantle yeah. and to, to take away like kind of the, the academic rigor from yeah. in order to try and level the playing field, which is why I said earlier, you know, to the extent what you want to achieve is equity. Sure. There are two ways to do that. You can raise the floor or you can lower the ceiling. And for the most part, um, I, I see a circumstance where people are willing to indulge in this ceiling lowering and it, it frightens the hell out of me. It feels like Harrison Bergeron um, because in many respects it kind of is. And people it's not what people want in California. That canard. In California, you know, the initiative uh, passed quite well to stop affirmative action being brought back. University of California mm. Uh, who was dealing with this question of SATs, and it's all been muddled up because of COVID uh, sure. in, in terms of being able to judge and test kids who haven't been in school and so on and so forth. But leaving that aside uh, for a second, um, the University of California had the, put, did their own, put their own professors on the case. They produced a study uh, assessing the different impacts of SATs, non-testing, the whole variety. And they found that the SAT, the old-fashioned merit question, was mm -hmm. better able to find black kids and first-generation immigrant kids who were bright and who were not being served well yes. than any yeah. other mechanism. And that if yeah. you really wanted to increase the number of, of minority kids who were, could do the work and you could find them, because these tests find innate intelligence that, 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 that sparks and lives without any of this training. And that's how you find right. the bright ones in, in the black. And it does seem to me that when this ends up, though, with a disparity when Asian kids are doing so much better, um, 
there's a panic, and the panic requires, in fact, that you that, that you've got to rig it because you genuinely don't believe. It seems to me the premise is they don't believe black kids really can compete by the same rules and by the same. Well, they standards. certainly don't believe that. Yeah. yeah, it's implicit in what they're saying yeah. and doing, and I find that the most depressing thing of all. I mean, I. I'm particularly passionate about SATs. I know that sounds weird because everybody hates them and everybody should hate them because they're unbelievably awful, but they gave me my whole life. I mean, I, I, I passed mm. an IQ test, got into a magnet school. That's how, my, how I was given a start in life, a real start in life. And the idea that kids, especially minority kids, who really could do well at these schools are being prevented because of what I regard as the racist ideas uh, of equity um, uh, it's just it's it, it's so in, in, infuriating. Um, Camille, um, one 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 last. Uh, is there is there anyone out there um, uh, who is African American who you think is really doing well? Is really telling it like it is on these subjects? Is really open to interrogation? It does feel like there's this sort of mass of, of uniformity on one end, but there must be rebels against this. There must be, I mean, I guess there's Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes and you and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams and yeah. Chloe I mean, Valdery. You, you, know you know the main folks who are out there. Um, but, I, it, but interestingly for me, you know, progress is when even more people are willing to do what you do, which is not have the sort of shielding that we do and to have these difficult conversations anyways, and to speak honestly and, and passionately and compassionately about these issues as well. Because a world where you know, only I am able to talk about these things or the other people who kind of look something like me um, is, is a world where we're still giving too much away. Um, and I think we just need, we need, we have a deficit of bravery uh, in this country and in our politics right now. And we need more people who are willing to be brave and to go against the grain and to speak up when they feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think that the instinct these days is to keep your head down and to try to avoid controversy in different contexts for understandable reasons. And people are afraid of being canceled in their workplaces. Um, and this is true for people who aren't journalists as well. If, if I were really smart um, in terms of my career, I would not r- write or talk about race ever again. It's sure. done nothing. Yeah. It's done nothing but hurt me. Uh, yeah. In terms yeah. of, but I genuinely, I genuinely want to know the truth about this and how we might do better with it. That's, I, I, yeah. And I do care about that. And the fact that I'm white seems to me to be irrelevant. I, I, I always have this old fashioned view that anyone can say anything about anything. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. That, that's the point of liberalism. So all that matters is you're you. It doesn't matter what yeah. else attaches to you, but you're you and your ability yeah. to say anything and go anywhere. I find this about journalism, too. What happened to the virtues of going into a place that you know nothing about, that you are absolutely alien to and describe and understand what's going on there as, a, as an act of empathy, as an act of understanding, as an act of imagination? Uh, now, there yeah. may be, in some cases, it may be really helpful to have someone from that background to, to report and narrate and to figure out what's going on. They may have better instincts. And that's also great. I'm not dismissing people for that point. But 
the whole concept of this idea of an actual writer and thinker, independent of his identity or race or anything, going into and just trying to understand something different than him. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing that just drives me crazy. Why, in, why does all this mentality lead one simply to think about oneself and one's own identity as opposed to guiding people to look at other people's identities and to, and to explore them uh, in ways that they might not previously know? Um, yeah, that I always found the, the joy of, of intellectual life, um, is, 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 is going to places utterly alien to you and finding a way to understand them. And I, th I guess the reason why they don't agree with that is they don't really believe in reason as I do, or as you do, they don't believe that the human mind can transcend its own biases and its own background and its own race and its own gender. Mm -hmm. And they may be true just at some level, but if you remove the possibility of an individual escaping all those things and finding the truth, then I think you've, you've destroyed, you know, really the basis for all sorts of thinking and writing and, and doing and being things that the West has been so good at. Uh, yeah. it's, it feels like a sort of attack on itself at this point, some autoimmune response. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two words that, that pop out to me listening to you now. It's empathy, um, which I think, you know, as a species, we have a, a bottomless capacity for it. Try to understand the view from someone else's, from someone else's position. Um, but the other is dignity. And for me personally, my belief is that every, every person ought to demand the dignity of being regarded as an individual uh, for, for having your words and actions and deeds uh, all judged on the basis of you know their own quality on the basis of their merit um, and to not even have your lived experience be something that is flattened and degraded in a way that suggests that it's anything other than your own which does not suggest that there can't be some parallels or some patterns etc cetera, etc cetera, but it is still your own um, and there's something really critical about that um, and something very vital um, that, that has to be recognized with respect to what's lost when a society is determined, it seems, to move away from that principle and to rob people of that dignity when people don't demand that dignity for themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly committed to, <laughs> to living those values out. And I hope I can inspire more people to do the same. Well, that's a very um, Catholic note to end on. The, the the dignity of the human person is <laughs> having been like, raised Seventh Day Adventist. Oh, you! Oh, we we should have gotten into that. Um, <laughs> Whole another conversation. But yeah, I I I I would hate to be a member of minority that's just sort of dismissed in this in the way that people do dismiss them or condescended to in the way people condescend mm -hmm. or generalize um, about the way people are. Um, Camille, it's been really fun to have you and to chew over a few of these things. Um, check out the fifth column. It is hilarious. There are all sorts of <laughs> digressions, title pools. Occasionally smart and interesting. <laughs> and occasionally, well, always fun, though. I, I always have a good time. Um, yeah, yeah. And we've got a couple, some really interesting guests coming up. So um, tune in and see you next time. Thank you.